Thank you for joining me for another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dian. Today, I am joined by Peter Fries. Hey, Peter, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Leo, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, so... As if it isn't obvious from your background what you do, but <laughs> go ahead. Uh, so yeah, my name is Peter. I'm a developer advocate here at Google on the Firebase team. And I've been with Google for slightly more than seven years now. I've, I've actually joined on the Google Plus team. So that <laughs> that's kind of fun fun fact about me, um, you know. When I, when I interviewed for this position, they asked me, so we've got two openings, one on the Chromecast team and the other one on the Google Plus team. And I, <laughs> you're like, I know that Google Plus is going places. <laughs> Chromecast, nobody's going to use and, Chromecast. And, and I said, oh, um, you know, I'd be more interested in Chromecast. <laughs> and then it turned out that they thought I didn't have enough uh, experience with media. And then I asked, would you be interested in joining the, the, the Google Plus team? And I was like, for sure. <laughs> So that that's how I got started. But, you know, soon after I joined Google, we basically restructured how the team worked. And the team that I initially joined became what's, what was known for a very long time as the partner developer relations team. So that is basically, and, and it still exists, but in, in a slightly different shape. So what we did there was basically work with app developers across the globe and help them build better apps using Google technologies like, you know, obviously Android and Chrome, but a lot of other things, for example, Google Now or Android Wear. And we would work with them in the early phases of product development. So for example, for Android Wear, we would go out and say, hey, there is something new, so please come under NDA, and then we can show you what it is. We can work with you to develop ideas how your application might benefit from this new thing. And then we would help them build integrations with this technology and then help them ship this into the market. So the idea basically was to get product feedback from them and also put those new APIs and products into the market. So, for example, when you go to Google I.O. and then you see the announcement of something new and third-party developers already have integrated with that, that was... nice. Um, our team's role, essentially, right? And it was really, really exciting because we um, worked with really well-known brands. And, you know, it's it's amazing when you look at the time, when you look back and see how you how we've been able to help them and, you know, develop their business as well. Uh, that was really, really good fun. So I was on that team for a long time. And then I joined the Firebase team in 2019 when they had an opening, uh, which basically said, we're looking for someone who is interested in Firebase, who has some experience with JavaScript and TypeScript, and also is a fan of iOS and has a background in iOS development. And I was like, that is so much me. Um, so you already you know, had I, a background in iOS development. I did. I did. So before I joined Google, I had been working at a couple of consulting companies and I did have some experience in iOS development. So I've, I had built a couple of apps before. We also had built tools to essentially generate iOS applications. You know, okay. that was back in the time when, you know, Swift wasn't even a secret project, uh, in Chris Latner's um, laptop. So we only had Objective C. And yeah. the first time I saw Objective C, I was like, whoa, 
all those all those braces. It looks ter- <laughs> it looks it looks terrible. So uh, you know, I, I I'll be honest. I hated it in the beginning, uh, and then we we developed something, and then I was like, why is this breaking all of the time? And then a friend of mine said, I think we need to do memory management ourselves. And I said, you can't be serious. I mean, come on, like. Do your do do memory management yourself. That is like so so 1980s. Right, right. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. no, 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 no. You, you need to do that. Uh, and then you know, because we were so disappointed, we said, oh, let's let's generate um, apps instead of having them having to write them manually. And as a background, uh, the company I had been working back then that was a consulting company which had you know a big name in model driven development. Okay, so it was basically the nail. And we, we had a hammer and we were, we were looking for nails, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> and, and we used that generator to basically show off our, gen, um, our generators and, and tell people, hey, look, uh, you can generate iOS applications with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. I want to thank the sponsor of today's episode, Revenue Cat. Revenue Cat makes it easy for app developers to build, analyze, and grow in app purchases and subscriptions on iOS, Android, and the web. No server code required. With a few lines of code, get in-app purchase infrastructure analytics and integrations without managing servers. If you checked out our previous episode with Andy from RevenueCat, you know how much RevenueCat can help with some of the difficult infrastructure, even with the new updates in StoreKit 2. They make in-app purchases easier. They solve the painful edge cases, manage subscription status across platforms, and cut implementation time from months to hours, so you can focus on building your app. There's some great automated reporting tools some great analytics, customer lists, and filters and segments. I highly recommend you check Revenue Cat and get started today. Once you've done that, go ahead and check out their YouTube channel too. They have some great services there and great videos to show you how to get started, whether you want to use a CocoaPod or a Swift package, as well as some of the new tools they have in their dashboard. So go to RevenueCat.com, get started with your brand new app today. Thank you, Revenue Cat, for sponsoring today's show. So how long have you been with the Firebase team? So I joined in August 2019. So it's been slightly more than two years now. So I think like I was, I've known, you know, I think the first time I met some folks on the Firebase team would have been at TriSwift 2018. And I got a nice bottle of hot sauce from them. (laughs) Right, but I know like Firebase <laughs> is really popular amongst a lot of iOS developers just to get up and running, and in a way where like CloudKit, you're not like necessarily locked into the Apple ecosystem, and Firebase obviously does a lot more than what CloudKit does. Um, but maybe I'll let you explain kind of the use case for Firebase and why it's so popular amongst iOS devs. Yeah, sure. So um, essentially what Firebase is, it's Google's mobile and web application development platform. So something that not many people know is that it basically runs on Google Cloud. So when you when you create a new Firebase project, that is a Google Cloud project, right? It's just a more friendly user interface, if you will. I mean, the, the GCP Cloud um, console is a friendly place still, but uh, Firebase makes it even more friendly and you don't have all those dials and knobs that you can configure. So it's a more approachable um, entry to to Google Cloud, essentially. Uh, And we have a lot of 
products that we that we support on the platform. And on top of GCP, essentially, we we bring those mobile and web SDKs to make it easier for developers to to access GCP and build their mobile applications and web applications with friendly interfaces with with good developer experience. So to put them in the position to iterate faster, to uh, to get to market at um, at a faster rate. So Firebase has three main pillars, essentially. So there is the build pillar, then we've got release and monitoring, and then we've got engage. So maybe just a couple of products for, for each of those pillars. So on the build pillar, we've got authentication to make it easier to authenticate your users. We've got Cloud Firestore, which is a NoSQL database for storing data. We've got cloud storage for storing large files such as videos, images, what have you. There is Firebase hosting, which you can use to host static or dynamic sites. We've got cloud functions, which is a serverless compute platform, which you know integrates very nicely with a lot of other Firebase products. So for example, if you create a new document in cloud, in cloud Firestore, you can write a trigger in cloud functions that will basically be able to operate on this document and do things based on what's in the document, right? And there is remote config that you can use for feature flagging. So you can turn on and off certain features in your application without having to roll out a new version of your app. There is cloud messaging for push notifications. And then we get into the release and monitoring pillar. And, you know, probably the most well-known product there is Crashlytics for tracking crashes and, you know, figuring out how, how many users are affected and stuff like that. We've got Analytics, which obviously is also a very well-known uh, Google product. There is performance monitoring to figure out, um, you know, which requests in your application are slow and you might want to take a look at them. There is Test Lab for running automated tests on physical devices and then there is um, app distribution, which makes it easier to distribute your application to your beta testers. And then for the engage pillar, we have stuff like predictions or A-B testing, dynamic links, and in-app messaging. Essentially, all the stuff that you need to re-engage your users. And, you know, obviously, cloud messaging also falls into this pillar because, mm -hmm. you know, you'll, you'll want to send uh, notifications to your users to especially to the ones where you realize, oh, there might be churn, and then you want to get them back into your application. Yeah, that makes sense. So, like, now, uh, I, I guess I should have asked this earlier. Was Firebase started internally at Google, or was it a product that Google had bought out? Both. Okay. <laughs> so okay. Firebase, essentially, in the beginning, was what's now known as the Firebase Real-Time Database, or RTDB. Gotcha. And that was okay. an internal external product. And just a, a couple of days ago, some of the folks who joined Google with that acquisition said, oh, it's now been, I think, seven years uh, that they've basically been at Google. Gotcha. So uh, Google acquired Firebase when it was just the real-time database, and then we essentially worked to bring all those other features that you need as mobile and web application yeah. developers to build applications into this one platform and tried to to make it really well integrated and and, and enjoyable and, and fun to use product. 
Yeah, and it's like now basically the like leading MBAS mobile backend as a service platform mm. out there. I remember the old days of like, well, you've got you've got a lot of the old pars.com folks that have like mm. looking for something and like it it seems like it's been the platform that's like easy to integrate and like cross-platform and super simple to work with. What makes Firebase because one of the complaints I've heard is like that there's so much you can do to where you get to a point where you need like a relational database. What do you think is like the best way to get started with Firebase and use it in such a way that it was meant to be used, I guess? Hmm. That's a good question. Because like for iOS devs, the biggest problem is you get into core data and you're like, why why can't I run a SQL query? Why can't I do this? Yeah. Right. And there's like a level of abstraction there that provides convenience to developers that sometimes developers don't know how to take advantage of, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, maybe maybe let you let me give you an example. So I'm I'm currently working on an update to a sample application I wrote a while ago, which is a taskless application. Um, and you know, it sounds like such a such a boring thing to do, right? But I started this, it must have been almost two years ago, when Swift UI was new and I wanted to see how far can you get with Swift UI. And I said, okay, let's try and replicate the iOS reminders app, right? It's it's a simple enough application, but it's a real world application and you know, you can you can see um, how well the UI toolkit works, and then it's if you look closer, you realize oh, it's it's more than just a list because you have multiple lists. You you can move stuff around, uh, and nowadays you can even share a list with other people, right? So I could create a list and share it with you. So, and if you if you think about how you would do that and how you would model that in a relational model, you would probably have an entity for managing your lists, and then you would have another entity for managing your your tasks, and then you might have an entity for users, and then all these need to be in some sort of relationship. And when you do that for a NoSQL document based approach, like you would use on Firestore then you would essentially have one collection of documents which contains all your tasks right and then your all your your task documents would contain um the attributes you care about like the title um of of a task completion state things like uh, the due date and 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 stuff like that and then in order to make it so that you can nest stuff you would essentially have just one additional attribute which says, okay, so this task A, for example, can be a subtask of something else. And you would essentially just keep an additional attribute for the parent task, right? And then in order to 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 manage your 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 user assignments, so who owns what? Like if um, are you the owner of a task or is it me? you would have another attribute on on this document which just says, okay, this is the user ID of the user who owns this document. So you would, you know, the, the kind of modeling that you use to 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 model your your um your data structure is slightly different, but not very much. And um you would, you know, normally when you when you model it for for a SQL database, um, you would start to denormalize, right? And 
in NoSQL, you often do the opposite, right? So you, you add just more attributes to your, to your documents because you need them there, right? In order to prevent having to read from somewhere else. So it's more like you, you can really think of it as everything that you have in one screen in your application most likely goes into a collection of documents in a NoSQL database, right? Instead of trying to aggregate stuff using queries from here and there and then pulling it together. So that is probably the biggest difference, right? Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. I've, I've worked with Firebase and Mongo and stuff, so I kind of have an idea of like how you want to avoid kind of the relational connections and redundancy that you, you run into with SQL what maybe is the first service someone should be familiar with when they are getting into the whole Firebase suite and they're building an iOS app? So I find myself mostly using authentication and Firestore, really, because and and one of the one of the things that you can see is that you can because you have you have cloud functions that can trigger on events in Firestore you can almost use it like a hub right so you can you can drive functionality by by changing attributes in in documents or adding documents to your database and then something happens as a result so to give you one example a couple of years ago um for google io we built mobile apps to make it easier for people to see program for the conference and then um also to reserve a seat for a session in one of those tents, right? Because we wanted, we wanted to uh, to give people the opportunity not to have to, to to queue for such a long time. Right. And the way how that works was you basically that the application wrote a document into the database and said this user is interested in reserving a seat for this session, and then we would have a function which would trigger on that and would go off to another system to check availability and and see you know do we have still enough seats and if yes, it would write back into another document that the the client would listen to, and that document would drive the state of a button which would say, okay, we have reserved a seat for you. And then that would um, be transported back into the list of reserved sessions for this user. So it is, you know, it's a kind of different way of thinking about how you how you build your applications instead of calling an API and that API then goes over and writes into a database. What you do is you write into your Firestore database and then you trigger functionality based on top of that right mm, okay so it's, it's kind of it's in the beginning i thought that's kind of backwards but it's very very powerful now do you how do you write the function in the firestore database for when a change is triggered so or can you just do you just write that in the app no so um you you write this in javascript or typescript okay so okay. it runs it, it runs and then it runs on uh, the you know it's, server. it's, it's, it's yeah it's yeah, it's on on the server in air quotes, right? Right, right. <laughs> because right. it's a it's a serverless product, so right. um, you you'll write it locally and then you'll deploy it. And okay. you know, I should mention that instead of um, deploying it to to the actual production or or development product in the cloud, thanks to Firebase emulators, now you can do all of that locally on your machine. So oh, nice. the Firebase okay. emulator basically is a suite of 
yeah, it's it's a replica of of all the services that we provide. So you you have an emulator for functions, for um, Firestore, for storage, and for authentication. So you can have all those services running locally, uh, which makes it really easy to, to test go and, and, and test and do all that kind of stuff. And you know you don't have so it, it has a couple of benefits, right? So let's assume we're working um, on a team, and that means we don't. Uh, step on each other's toes if we use the same development um, project in the cloud, right? So everybody can use their local emulator suite and then use their test instance locally on their machine. Also, it's a lot faster. You don't have to set up all those testing projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes and, sense. You know, it's it's got all those benefits. When are you guys going to support Swift on the serverless backend? <laughs> that's that's a question I get all of the time. And you know, I was um I was at Swift Leads, I think, two weeks ago. And wait, um, you went to a I, physical conference? I did, yeah. And it was amazing. <laughs> it was so amazing. Uh, um next year. You know, it, it was it, it was it was in the the venue was some sort of theater and you know they had a real stage with real nice lighting and you could um, see all the people in the audience. It was just amazing. I think we had about 100, 110 people in the audience. It was packed. That's awesome. And, you know, one, one thing that I found really impressive was nobody, literally nobody, was uh, looking into their laptop or phones. Everybody was paying attention all of the time. Wow. That was just so amazing. Yeah, yeah. because, you know, I think people people had been craving going to a real conference and attending a real talk. Yeah, that makes that sense. Time. Yeah. yeah. So I was at um, Swift Leads and then uh, Tim Condon, who is on the Swift uh, server-side working group, um, yeah. also gave a talk. And then I, I went to him later and said, oh, you know, a um, couple of people are always asking about Swift on, on Firebase right. you know, for, for, for cloud functions and, you know, can you provide me some introductions to the server side group? Um, so we've it's something that we are thinking about. It's obviously a question of demand. Right. <laughs> you know, the more people are interested in that, the the more likely we are going to to actually implement it. Mm-hmm. Um we, yeah. we we run we we run something called Hack Week um a couple of times a year. So um my my current plan is to to basically um uh, find a couple of people inside of Firebase um who are willing to to implement a prototype during the next Hack Week. Yeah. Tell them you got Swift on the Lamb on the AWS Lambda and then they'll be like, oh oh we've got to do it. We really got to do it. So maybe maybe that'll help. I don't know. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of similar, similar technology more or less, but I know you can do Swift like on the back end as far as like GCP is concerned. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there is a blog post that a developer advocate on the Google cloud team wrote. Okay. And it explains how you can use cloud run to, um, to run your service your Swift service in the in the backend, and then you'll basically have to implement your own API to make it callable from from your client. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, folks! I wanted to let you know once again about Linode. Linode has been absolutely awesome at hosting my websites, and I highly recommend you're checking them out. If you're looking at starting that new server side Swift app, then you'll definitely want to take a look at Linode. 
Luna has been ranked as one of the top infrastructure as a service providers. And if you're a developer, they're going to be perfect for you. Their simple, easy to use API, command line, or user interface is easy for developers to get started. They have Kubernetes, video streaming services, cloud GPUs, machine learning, and all sorts of other apps. It's highly affordable and a great way to get started if you need your own custom server located anywhere around the world. They have free 100% human support. That is 24-7, 365 days. They have brand new servers located in Toronto and Mumbai, and they're a great alternative if you're looking for something besides one of the more bigger cloud services. Try the link in the show notes below and receive $100 in credit. And if you're looking at getting started on that server-side Swift app, check out the link also in my show notes for the presentation I did for 360 iDev on how to get started with getting that Vapor app set up. Again, go to the link in the show notes below to try Linode and get $100 in credit today. Thank you for listening. Enjoy getting started and enjoy the rest of the episode. So I've actually played around with Firestore and SwiftUI as far as like keeping the data in sync. Like what are some tips you have for like a SwiftUI developer that's using Firestore as a backend? Like this would have been... Gosh, I developed this app two years ago, and then I got rejected by the App Store. But I was glad. To, I was glad to get. <laughs> oh no! I was glad to get like some experience playing around with Firestore and SwiftUI. What what tips do you have for like a Swift UI developer out there who wants like that kind of MVVM experience of reactive programming, but also working with Firestore? Yeah, so I've I've done this a couple of times myself, and there are a couple of ways to do it, right? So um, one thing that you should probably be aware of is that Firestore supports something which is called snapshot listeners. Yep. So yeah, see, that's, what, is that's what I use, yeah. Yeah, so so you basically say, hey, oh, and let's, let, me, let me take a step back. So in Firestore, you organize your data in collections and documents. So um, a collection can contain any number of documents, and then a document can have sub-collections, and these can contain documents again. So you have this alternating between collection and document and sub-collection and document and so on and so forth, right? So a collection can never contain a sub-collection. You'll have to have a document in between. So with snapshot listeners, you essentially say, I want to listen to this collection here and I want to be alerted whenever there is a new document or when there is a change to one of the documents or when a document is deleted or whatever. And this is what drives the real timiness of Firestore. And, you know, the first time you see it, uh, it is, it is so, so amazing. You make a change, um, in, in your application and then it's reflected in the console immediately and vice versa. Yeah, right. Or if you have multiple applications running, they will all be in sync and to, to, to the eye, it appears as if it is instantaneous, right? So there is a small lag, but it's sub-second, um, usually if you're on a fast connection. So that is, that is pretty amazing. So use a snapshot listener and then I usually set up so it, it depends. So so I used I use a published object, and then I'd basically like when this when the snapshot listener would change, like I'd have like that view model would basically change, and then you know with the magic of SwiftUI and reactive programming, it would automatically change change what's visible. That's how I ended up doing it. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's okay. what I would recommend. So you, you should have a view model, which is an observable object. And then you have your snapshot listener on that. Whenever you get something back from the snapshot listener, you will write it into your published property and then your UI will update. So that's one thing. The other thing that I often do, which I have had people uh, scold me for writing uh, complicated architectures, is that I implemented a repository, which essentially does the same. So you you uh, attach to the snapshot listener, you update your published property, and mm. then you have your view model. And the view model then subscribes to that published property in your repository. So you might ask, okay. why would you want to do that? And the answer to that is that oftentimes you will need to access the same data in different locations in your application. Okay. But the different views want to display or manipulate various different kinds or parts of that data, right? So right. Um, you could say, I have this repository which contains all my tasks, but for example, for the overview list of tasks, I'm only just interested in a title and then if it's marked as done or not. But if I navigate into the detail screen, I want to have more intricate data. So my view yeah. model will look different, right? So, and yeah, that's that why. that makes sense. I think I, I think I kind of did that because one of the, one of the things I ran into was previews. Like I want previews, but mm. I don't want to connect to Firestore on a preview. Yeah. So like with, with the view model, I can just like, I, I'll have an abstraction of the view essentially. And like in real time it, or in, in the real app, it'll obviously convert the document into whatever I want to see in the view model. But then when I do the preview, I can just hack a mock essentially together to sh like say whatever words I want to show up or whatever icons I want to show up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. On my yeah. 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 That's, that's absolutely what I would recommend in your previews, basically fetch some or, or produce some mock data that you produce statically so that right. you can quickly see that. Yeah. I mean, we, we get a lot of feedback on, on the GitHub repository uh, from people who apparently are trying to directly access their run, their running instance of Firestore and then display that data in a preview. I yeah. mean, I can see how you might want to do that. And you know, it is, it is kind of interesting, but if you're, if you're honest, I mean, uh, it's, you know, for, for performance reasons and also for, for all sorts of other reasons, it's better to 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 have mock data. Um, you know, right. faster turnaround times. You don't depend on you know somebody making any changes that you didn't expect, mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Or, yep. or or dropping the database uh, underneath you. So uh, I would always recommend um, using mock data. Yeah, you know, speaking of mistakes, uh, what are some other like big mistakes that people make when they're integrating with Firebase and the suite of tools that it provides? Yeah, so especially I for mean, iOS devs, I should say. <laughs> so, um I think one of the biggest things that people always or not always, but I I've seen many people do is when you create a Firestore instance, um it will it will tell you, "Hey, uh, we're setting up security rules." And then people will turn them off for the time being because um, they feel they they get in their way. So um, for those who who are unfamiliar, security rules essentially is a little language which allows you to specify very detailed who is allowed to access what data in your database, right? And the reason why we need that is 
when you use Firestore in what we call a native mode, then your clients can directly access the database. There is no intermediary in, in between, right? So there is direct access. And so if you don't have any security rules in place, anybody can basically go and access your database. So, you know, I could go and download an app from the App Store and extract their configuration and then try to access their Firestore instance, right? It's 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 in there. All the connection info is in there. So in order to prevent that, you need security rules which say only an authorized user who actually owns this data may go in and read this data or change this data and or or delete documents and stuff like that. So that is the biggest mistake that people make um, turning off their security rules. You, you should essentially develop your security rules in tandem with the functionality in your application. So whenever you create something new, something where you add a new attribute to your document, make sure that you update your security rules. Um, whenever you implement a new functionality, let's say adding or deleting something, update your security rules. Yeah. Okay. But but if you don't if you don't enable it, it just works. So that's the. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it just works, right? But uh, it is, it is, uh, you know, a malicious actor. Uh, you know, if we didn't have malicious people, then it wouldn't be a problem. Right, um, right, exactly. But a malicious actor could come and access your user's data and you don't. So there are a couple of reasons why you don't want that. You know, it's <laughs> there are a few your reasons. user's data. Um, also, you know, they, they could basically hammer your backend and, 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 and drive up the bill. So that's, that's another thing that, uh, that you want to avoid. Uh, and this is where another new feature that we just um, launched a couple of months ago comes into play, which is called app check. So this essentially uses app attest to basically say, so this request doesn't come from your app, right? So you, you basically, uh, it's, it's, it's a level of authorization where your application has to prove that is actually eligible to access your backend. Mm, so okay. even even if you were able to kind of like, extract kind of like cores, sort of. I don't know. Yeah, kind yeah, kind of. So yeah, okay. um, you know, even if I was able to extract the configuration details and the connection details um for a Firebase instance and for a Firestore database. I could well try to 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 access that database, but if that project has AppCheck enabled, then I wouldn't be able, as a malicious actor, to to read data, to manipulate anything, yeah. um, because I sense. would be rejected immediately. Yeah. Nice, nice. What do you think are some of the more underutilized features of Firebase that iOS devs should take advantage of? So there, there are two things here. The first one is anonymous auth, and um, we we didn't talk about authorization and authentication um, yet. So it's it's another very very big and important feature of Firebase. Yeah, and it makes it really easy for for you to um, authenticate users. We support a couple of mechanisms. Um, email and password obviously is the first one that people think about. I would. You know, you can definitely use it, but because passwords are insecure, I would encourage people to try to use something else. For example, email and link, which basically sends the user uh, a magic link to sign in, or 
um, sign in with Apple or sign in with Google or even with, um, you know, you can uh, even uh, authenticate with um, sign GitHub. in with Google Plus. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's not longer possible. <laughs> Unless you dig out some old uh, installation <laughs> of the Google Plus app. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and then, so anonymous auth basically is a mechanism where you get an authentication instance and an authorized user without having to ask the user to sign in in the first place, right? Okay. So kind of like giving them like a little like preview of the app before they actually sign in. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So okay. oftentimes, I will I will see people, um, you know, try and ask people to to sign in first before they can try the application. And that is usually because they need some sort of key to access the database, right? So right, with right. Firebase Anonymous Auth, you get this, this um, unique ID for the user, and then you can use that to access a Firestore and say, okay, we're going to use that as a key to to mark all of the documents that belong to that user. And the cool oh, thing nice. about that is that you can then upgrade the user. Let's assume that um, the person That's tries really your cool. app and then they really like it. And then they say, oh, you know, now I want to, you know, share something with a friend because it's it's an application that, um, you know, has sharing built in. And then you'll ask them, oh, you know, you need to sign in, please. One of using one of those providers, choose whichever you like. So you could basically like start creating documents without signing in. And then if you need, mm-hmm. if they need like an actual real user, that's when you start triggering the sign in in the app. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the cool thing is that you can, uh, you, you can connect as many providers as you want. So for example, you can uh, tell them, Hey, you, you want to sign in using sign in with Apple. That's great. Here you go. Or if they would like to link with their Twitter account, that's possible as well. And then next time they come to your application on a new platform and they don't recall, so how did I sign in? You can tell them, so use any one of those um, authentication mechanisms and then they can sign in using that. And you'll you'll realize, oh, you know, we already know that this user has signed in using Twitter, for example, on this other device. Their account is connected and then you'll you'll be able to pull that data from from the database and present it to them. So that is that is one underutilized feature. And then the other thing that uh, which is really really big is Firebase extensions. And I know that extensions is such an overloaded term especially for iOS developers um, where you think about stuff like widgets or Siri kit extensions and stuff like that. But Firebase extensions essentially are pre-built pieces of functionality that you can easily install into your Firebase project. For example, there is an extension for shortening URLs, for resizing images, for translating text, and there are higher-level integrations, for example, with um, MailChimp or MessageBird or Stripe or Full Text Search with Algolia. And the way how Firebase extensions work is they are essentially cloud functions that listen for specific triggers, mostly in Cloud Firestore. So for example, the uh, Translate Text extension, right? That is an extension which listens to a specific specific collection in your database. And then as you write something into that document, some, some text, it will take this text, send it to the Google Translate API, 
translate it into all the languages you wanted to translate to, and then write it back wow. into a sub a sub document. So you have an instant translation for this text. And this is just one example. Right. And it's, it's super easy to deploy these into your application. You go in your Firebase project, look for Firebase extensions. It's at the uh, bottom left of the navigation bar. Click on install. Then there are a couple of settings that you can configure. And then, boom, you're good to go. That's awesome. And then, it, yeah, it offloads it onto the back end and not having to mm. deal with it in yeah. the app itself. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about? No, these were the main things. So so just as a sneak preview, um, we we are a couple of days away from the Firebase Summit. And at the summit, we will showcase how to build an entire application using Firebase extensions. Will those videos and be posted, I guess, online they, right away? They will, yeah. So if people are so we'll interested... Post, well, by the time this episode is up, I'm sure it'll be it'll be over. So yeah, we'll definitely post videos to that in our show notes. Uh, yeah, for sounds sure. great. How long does that go on? How many days, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a one day event um, okay. on November tenth. Yeah, we'll post a link to that so people can sign up and, and watch those videos. That's awesome. Cool. Uh, also, if people are interested, Peter's got quite a lot of blog posts on Swift UI. I know that's your other big passion, so we'll mm-hmm. definitely be posting that in our show notes as well. Thank you so much, Peter, for coming on. Where can people find you online? So. I am Peter Freeze almost everywhere. So if you, you know, Twitter's obviously where I'm most active. I've got a personal YouTube channel where I post the stuff that is more kind of like more Swift, Swift UI related, which doesn't have a direct Firebase connection. So you can find me there. So it's youtube.com slash C slash Peter Freezer. And then there's a blog at peterfreeze.dev. And obviously, also, please come visit us at our YouTube channel um, where I have a couple of videos as well and where you'll be able to find all the videos from the summit. Peter, thank you so much again for coming on. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. People can find me on Twitter at LeoGDN. My company is Break Digit. Uh, take some time to post a review if you could on whatever podcast player, like and subscribe on YouTube. I'm obligated to say that. And thank you again for joining us. I look forward to talking to you again. Bye.